We thank you, Father, that you are a rewarder of those that diligently seek you. You reward us with your faithful promises, Lord, for with your strength. You reward us with your, your consistency toward us. And it's true, our lives are in your hands. And so we pray that during this time of studying your word, you'd bless our hearts as we study the scriptures in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. God bless you again. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you're new with us, we are studying through the book of Ephesians on Sunday mornings. And so this morning we're in chapter 5. And while you're finding your way to Ephesians chapter 5, I want to just uh, really briefly just say, you know, whatever you're doing, continue to pray that the Lord would bless our church. A few weeks ago, we gave sort of a state of the church address, and uh, there was a word of encouragement to, at dinner time or whenever you gather together with family, and, and all just to say, Lord, bless our church. And uh, we need the blessing of God. Uh, pre- please pray for us specifically. We're in the planning stages of opening up some life groups, which will be fellowships in homes, and also some growth groups, which will be uh, small groups of men and also women growing in the things of God and growing as disciples. So pray for the life groups and the growth, growth groups that are going to be coming up at some point in the future and for their development. And also continue to pray for God's provision for us. It's just good to pray. And uh, the Lord will hear our prayers. Amen. Uh, so there's that. And uh, we also, as we pray one more time before the the study, we want to lift up uh, our nation and, of course, those that are suffering so uh, greatly because of incredible loss and devastation in the South and uh, the tornadoes and the storms and the havoc that was has been wreaked by all of those things. And uh, let's lift up Japan as well. The 126 million Japanese now, more open perhaps than ever, to the gospel of Jesus Christ through the things that they have suffered. We've gotten reports from Calvary chapels that are back there doing some pretty amazing things, and that's the report that they give, is that there is a new level of openness to the gospel. So let's pray for that as well. Amen? We, we lift these things up to you, Father. First, we pray for our own nation, and we know that we need your blessing. We need God to bless America. We need a return to you. We need a revival within the church. We need just the awareness that you're God and that you're in control and that this is a nation that was built as one nation under God. We need all of those things, Lord. So we pray for your mercies and grace, and we pray for those that are suffering so horribly, the families of those that have died in these tragedies and as well as those that have been displaced and are now without homes. We pray for your blessing, Lord, upon them. We pray that you would channel your amazing and infinite resources in their direction. And we pray that these things would open up the gospel of Jesus Christ to them as well. Here is a harvest field, and you've told us to pray to you, the Lord of the harvest, to send laborers into it. So we pray for laborers to go into that harvest field. Here in our own nation, as well as in that nation of Japan, we pray that laborers would go into the harvest field, that many would hear the gospel and many would be given the ability to make a choice to respond to Christ, having heard. 
So thank you, Lord, for that. We commit these things to you and continue to help us to pray for those that are suffering in the world in which you've placed us. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. If we're going to be simple about how the book of Ephesians has developed thus far, we would say that the first few chapters talk about what God has done for us in Christ. And then in chapter 4, we begin learning about our response to what God has done for us in Christ. And the very first thing that we learn in chapter 4 is that we need to walk in unity with other believers. And then we learn in chapter 4 that we need to put off concerning the behavior of our old man those things that we used to do. We need to put them off. Just like we put off an old, dirty suit of clothes. And we need to put on the new man, which is basically the likeness of Christ, the image of Christ that has been given to us through the new birth. We need to do these things by faith. And that leads us to chapter 5. When we see the very first word there in the chapter, the word therefore, it connects chapter 4 to what he is going to say in this chapter. It connects with the putting off the conduct of the old man and the putting on of the new. So Paul writes, Therefore be followers of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. So the first thing that we see from verse 1 here is that we need to be followers of God. The Greek word mimetai, imitators of God in many translations, a follower of God, an imitator of God. And what does it mean to be a mimic? Well, the verb would mean to copy or imitate someone closely. It would refer to copying their speech, copying their expressions, copying perhaps their gestures. It would mean to take on the appearance of something else. It would mean to resemble closely something else. And we're to mimic or imitate God. We're to be followers of God as dear children. Now Paul used this same word, in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, where he told the Corinthians, I urge you to imitate me. That's a bold thing for a human being to say to another human being, imitate me. But he said it. But then he clarified it in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, where he said, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. 
So what Paul was saying there is that in those ways in which I am following or mimicking or imitating Christ, copy that example in me as well. And I think that's the safe thing to say. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. If you see anything in me that is not imitating Christ, then don't imitate that. But imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians. And we're to imitate and be followers of God, notice, as dear children, as dear children. The word is beloved children, uh, children that are objects of the divine love, literally. This is the same word that was used when Jesus was being baptized by John in the Jordan River. And you remember what happened at that scene. There was a voice from heaven, but before the voice there was the form of the Spirit of God God coming down like a dove upon Jesus. And then the voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. This is the Son who is the object of my eternal love, in whom I am well pleased. And so here, Paul addresses his readers in the same way, using the same concept. Be mimics of God, be followers of God as dear children. And this is how God sees us, as his own dear children. Now, as children, we're to be imitators or followers of God. And it's characteristic of children that they are natural imitators. Adults, not so much, but children are natural imitators. They watch very closely. Uh, Just a couple of weeks ago, um, our granddaughter, Jaden, was at the doctor's office. And she was checking things out. I mean, she was just silent, which is not her normal way of being. She was silent, just watching everything, closely watching the doctor, closely watching how he examined her younger brother, closely observing everything, just watching, not saying a word. And they got in the car and they came home, and wouldn't you know it, she became Dr. Jaden. And she practiced every single maneuver that she had watched that doctor perform on her brother. I mean, not literally, but using all the things that she had at her disposal to try to play doctor. She had watched very carefully. Because children are natural imitators. That's how they learn. In fact, we're told from the field of neuroscience that children are born with pretty much a full complement of brain cells. A hundred billion brain cells. But these brain cells aren't fully connected at birth and aren't necessarily being used at birth. And so as the baby grows into infancy and into childhood, what's happening is that these neurons are forging connections. And by the time that the child is three years old, one trillion of these connections called synapses are being formed. Now how are these synapses being formed, which form the basics of the child's learning? and how the child views the world, and how the child acts, and how the child develops in terms of behavior. Well, this growth of the synapses and the connections that are made are fueled by the child's experiences, by heredity, and by how the child grows up. And 
right in the middle of all that is what the child watches and what the child hears. The child is looking very carefully at the world around him or her and is observing things and is checking things out, learning, listening to words, can understand the English language or the Spanish language or whatever the dominant language is in the home, can understand it much earlier than they can actually speak it because they're listening so carefully. And then eventually that behavior uh, surfaces and the child is being developed and is being formed into that unique person that God has made him or her to be. Well, that's the way it is with us. It's like Yogi Berra said, you can observe an awful lot just by watching. And it's true, we can observe an awful lot just by watching. If we pay close attention to God himself and watch him and listen to him and really observe carefully who he is and what he's about and what he's like, well, that'll form the basis for synapses forming in our minds and connections being made so that we can become those kinds of people that he would have us to become. Isn't it interesting? In the book of Romans, when it's talking about being transformed into the image of God, be transformed, Paul says, by the renewing of your mind, that you might prove what is that good and that perfect and acceptable will of God. It's the renewing of the mind. It's the forming of those connections through spiritual truth that comes into the mind that is received and is believed and is understood. That's what the changes are produced from. And so we have it here. Be followers of God as dear children. Just be good mimics of God himself. As children learn from their parents and from their environment around them, so also we learn from our Father, our divine heavenly parent, and from the environment he provides around us. And then he gets more specific. He says, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So then Sasser answers the questions, what should we imitate and whom should we imitate? Walk in love. That's what we should imitate is agape. It's the Greek word agape, the Greek word for love. Walk in love. And whom should we imitate? Christ. Jesus himself. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us. Now we obviously need someone to imitate. We need a good example to imitate. Often our own personal histories don't provide worthy examples that we can imitate and follow. Could be our domestic environment, could be the environment that we chose when we hit adolescence, and all of a sudden we chose a, near peer, a new peer group that we're not going to lead us in ways of the Lord, but we're going to lead us into ways of darkness. We made those choices. And wherever we go, we don't often find worthy examples to imitate. And so the problem is that we continue to live as we have observed in the past. But with a new example coming in, with a new model, with a new individual 
whom we can imitate, that provides a whole new pattern for us. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new, right? Well, how do they become new? They become new in Christ. They become new seeing him, being changed by him, observing him, and paying close attention to him. He is the entrance of a new example, and he gives us the right person to follow. So the disciples, Peter, James, and John, were invited with Jesus to go up to the mountain of transfiguration, Mount Hermon probably. And there they were on the top of that mountain with Jesus, and he was transfigured before them. The word is metamorpho, to be metamorphosized, if you will. He was transfigured before them. He was changed into a more glorified state, right before the eyes of Peter, James, and John. Moses showed up on the scene. Elijah showed up on the scene. A conversation resulted. It was a moment of glory, of pure glory, seeing Jesus that way. And Peter thought it was such a great time, he wanted it to continue. So he said, Lord, it's, it's good that we're here. Let's make three booths, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. But Mark points out that he didn't know what to say. And that's why he said what he said. Because they were terrified. And then a cloud came. And a cloud overshadowed all of them. And a voice came out of the cloud. And this is what the voice said. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. It's not time any longer to listen to Moses. It's not like we have to go to the law. That's not the one to listen to these days. It's not like the need is to go to the prophet, to Elijah. And primarily listen to the voice of the prophet. We've got someone who has eclipsed Moses and has eclipsed Elijah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Father said, listen to him. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in the past to the fathers through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us in his beloved Son, Jesus Christ. We listen to him. And this is the model that we have. We don't need to look to the law or legalism to find answers. We don't need to look to the prophets or those that emphasize the law. We listen to and look to Jesus. And if we watch Jesus, this is what we'll be impressed by. We'll be impressed by the greatest of his attributes, which is love. Now abides faith, hope, and love, these three, Paul wrote. But the greatest of these is love. And that's the attribute of Jesus that stands out to us the most, is his love. So as we watch him closely to imitate him, we'll be impressed by his love. We'll be impressed by his incarnation. The fact that he actually came here is impressive. Why would you want to come here? I mean, it would have been much nicer for you, Lord Jesus, had you stayed in heaven. 
as a comfortable place there with no sin in it. Have to deal with folks like us. But he came. And oftentimes when I've traveled to other countries, people have been so thankful that we've gotten in a plane and we've traveled thousands of miles and crossed continents and oceans in order to come and be with them for a week or two. But in reality, they have no idea what it was like to get there. Some of them had never even been out of their own towns, some of these places we've traveled. Yet they're very, very thankful. We're very thankful to Jesus for his love in coming here, even though we really don't know completely what it cost him to get here. Yet he did come. We're impressed by his death, of course, that he was willing to remain on the cross, that our sins might be paid for. We're impressed with his kindness, his mercy, his benevolence, his acceptance. Aren't you glad that Jesus accepts you? So grateful for these things. As we watch him, we see all these characteristics in the Gospels. He feels things from us. He relates to us. Remember, he's on the way to Jairus' home. Jairus' daughter is sick. She's at the point of death. Jesus consents to follow Jairus to his home, to see his daughter. And on the way, there's a great crowd surrounding Jesus, people pressing in on him from every angle. And there was a woman who wiggled her way through that crowd, desperate. She had had a flow of blood for years that she couldn't be healed from. She consulted many doctors, spent her entire fortune to try to get well. None of it helped. She was bankrupt by this time. But she figured in her mind and in her heart, if I can just break through and touch the hem of his garment, I know I'll be healed of this affliction. And so she did. She was able to break through and she grabbed the hem of Jesus' garment and immediately she could feel within herself that she was healed of her affliction. But Jesus said, who touched me? The disciples were incredulous. All of these people are pressing in around you, Lord. And you said, who touched me? Well, there was one who touched him. Everybody was touching him, but there was only one that touched him. That was this woman. Because that's who Jesus is. He's he's our Savior who loves. Whom did he accept? Oh, people like Levi, the tax collector. Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Sinners the woman at the well who had had five husbands, Peter, loud, boisterous, impetuous Peter. Jesus just loves people. And as we watch him, we see how he is with people. He loves. He loves. And he is all of those things. And he is our example. I've done this many times. It's such a great exercise for me personally. But I'll read through the classic description of agape in 1 Corinthians 13. 
And I'll read these words. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And then I'll try to put my name in there just to kind of see how I'm doing. And I get so busted. Bill suffers long and is kind. Bill does not envy. Bill does not parade himself. Bill is not puffed up. He does not behave rudely. He does not seek his own. He's not provoked. He thinks no evil. He doesn't rejoice in iniquity. He rejoices in the truth. Bill bears all things, believes all things, helps all things, endures all things. Bill never fails. I wish. <laughs> but then I put Jesus' name in there fits perfectly so let's do that Jesus suffers long and is kind true or false absolutely Jesus does not envy he does not parade himself he is not puffed up he does not behave rudely he does not seek his own he is not provoked he thinks no evil he does not rejoice in iniquity he rejoices in the truth he bears all things, he believes all things, he hopes all things, he endures all things. And that has to do with people, folks. He bears all things in relationship to you and me. He believes all things. He believes the best about you and me. He hopes all things for you and me. He endures all things in you and me. Jesus Christ never fails. True or false? He's our example. He's the one we mimic. He's our pattern. Now, a word of caution here. Because if we attempt to mimic Christ without Christ and the help of Christ, we'll find ourselves horrible failures. Because only Christ in us can help us to imitate Christ himself. So let's make sure as we're seeking to imitate Christ or mimic Christ that we're calling upon the power of Christ to help us. And he will help us because this is his command. In fact, we can pray this way. Lord, your word tells us that we should mimic you, imitate you. I don't have that kind of power. But you do, so I'm calling upon you to give me the kind of power and motivation to help me imitate you in this thing called love. He'll do it. And then we take steps of faith in order that we might have him fulfill what we just prayed for in our lives. Does that sound right? Okay, so this offering of Christ and his love, as he has loved us and given himself for us, Notice it in verse 2. It's an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. In other words, Christ's love for us, Christ's love to his Father, smells good to God. It's a sweet-smelling aroma. Now, everybody loves the smell of a good barbecue. I sure do. And I love to eat from a good barbecue, too. But I love the smell of a good barbecue, Apparently, God does too. Because the love of Christ is he offered himself 
is a sweet-smelling aroma to God. It's an offering of a sacrifice. And this would be a reference probably to the sacrifice of the burnt offering, where they would take the animal and offer the entire animal on the altar of the burnt offering unto God. And the entire animal would be consumed, which is representative of the consuming of our entire lives before the Lord. I give all of myself to him in order that I might love. That's a sweet-smelling aroma to God. It's sweet to him. say, well, where do I start? If I'm going to imitate Christ and walk in love, where do we start? Well, we start if we're married with our wife or with our husband. Am I treating this person that God has brought into my life the way Jesus would if he were in my role? We start with our children. We go to the fellowship of believers with whom we're connected, to other members of the body of Christ to our neighbors, people that live around us, that we're connected with that way, to our fellow workers, to anyone that God brings into our lives, we walk in love. There are plenty of opportunities because there are plenty of people. And we walk in love as Christ loved us. Now, verses 3 through 5 Give us a list of prohibitions. These are things that are not part of our lives. Agape is part of our life, and following the example of Jesus is to be a part of our lives as believers. But these things in verses 3 through 5 are not to be part of our lives. And there's a reason for it. Because these things are absolutely opposite of agape. And they are absolutely opposite of the nature of Christ. This isn't what he's about, so it shouldn't be what I'm about. So let's look at the list quickly. Fornication is listed. Let not fornication be named among you. The word is porneia. We get the word pornography from this particular word. It refers to adultery. It refers to any sexual activity outside of the bounds of monogamous heterosexual marriage between a genetic male and female. It refers to sexual immorality of the mind or sexual immorality of the actions. Now why would God prohibit sexual activity outside of the bounds of monogamous heterosexual marriage between a genetic male and female. Why would he say no to it? Is God just a divine killjoy that's trying to take away all my fun? I mean, it looks so fun. Well, just look at the results of our culture's headlong dive into immorality, sexual immorality. What is it producing? It's producing epidemic levels of STDs, sexually transmitted diseases. It's producing broken homes. It's producing divorces. It's producing a continued self-absorption and a self-absorbed lifestyle. 
It's making women the objects of men, and men even more and more are becoming the objects of desire for women. It's trivializing relationships so that they are characterized by sex and by nothing else. The spiritual part, the emotional part, the intellectual part, thrown out the window. It's destroying human relationships. It's destroying human beings. Which brings us to the reason why God says no to it. He says no to it because it's bad. It's bad stuff. It kills us. And you've heard it said before, you'll hear it again. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. God says no to it because it's so bad for us. Just like we say no to our kids when they say, can I pray, play in the freeway today, Daddy? That's not a good idea. It's bad for you, Junior. So no, I can't. Oh, but you're always trying to take away my fun. Well, it would be fun, but it would be short-lived fun. You'd have fun for just a few seconds until the big splat. And so God is with us. God says no because this stuff ruins lives. He says no. And in the context, he says no to fornication or sexual immorality because it's, an, a, viol, it's a violation of the principle and the idea of agape love. The next one is uncleanness. Let not uncleanness be named among you. This refers to any kind of impurity. Adam Clark suggests that it may refer to any and all abominable and unnatural lusts like sodomy or bestiality, any dirty or immoral behavior. Let not that be named among you. The next one is covetousness, which in verse 5 is connected with idolatry. The word means excessive indulgence in anything or greed for anything. And some would suggest that it's excessive indulgence in things that may even be lawful if they're used moderately. But when they're used excessively, they become sinful. One commentator writes, as the covetous man never has enough of wealth, so the pleasure taker and the libertine never have enough of the gratifications of sense, the appetite increasing in proportion to its indulgence. Without going into depth on that comment, it's just enough to say that people never get sin out of their systems by practicing it. Well, I'm just going to get it out of my system and go off onto this binge. I'm going to go to Las Vegas and just get it out of my system. This gambling urge. Well, yeah. It's just going to get stronger. It'll become your prison. Covetousness connected to idolatry. Why connected to idolatry? Pastor David Guzik suggests idolatry happens in much more subtle and powerful ways than bowing down before a statue. A material object can become an object of idolatry for me. A relationship can become an object of idolatry, even a thought or a personal philosophy. Let it not be named among you. 
Don't let filthiness occur among you. The word means obsceneness involving obscenities or the use of obscene speech. Don't let foolish talking be named among you. The word is moralogia. Moros, the word for, that we would transliterate into moron. Logia, the word for speech. So the speech of a moron. Foolish talking. Don't let foolish talking be named among you. Just moronic speech, silly talk, just constantly clowning around. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't have great senses of humor and tell good, clean jokes. There's lots of good, clean jokes. You know, I learned something the first time I began to travel in a, into other countries, that a lot of times American jokes don't go over real well in other countries, and not just because of the translators, but sometimes our American joke, jokes are at the expense of other people. And that's a cultural taboo in much of the world. And I discovered that the hard way. But it got me thinking about just what humor is. So then I discovered that when I tell jokes about myself, they love it. Because it's self-deprecating. I'm, I'm making a fool out of myself as an object of, of good, clean humor. And people laugh and they just think that's great. Misery loves company, I guess. <laughs> but good, clean jokes are great for the soul. Lots of material available. So I thought, I'm going to Google good, clean jokes and see what comes up. So I found a website, cleanjokes.com. Well, they weren't all that clean, so I couldn't use them. <laughs> Not all of them were clean. And then, coarse jesting, let that not be named among you. The word is, as the ESV translated, translates it, crude joking. One Greek scholar calls it vulgar wittiness. You know, people that are just real quick. They can turn any comment into a, into a statement of vulgarity and everybody will laugh in the room. Let not coarse jesting be named among you. The reason why these things are forbidden is because they're bad. They're unloving, hateful acts, all of them, fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talking, coarse jesting. All of these things are unloving, hateful acts that harm others. And someone who is practicing these things is not walking in love and is not mimicking or imitating Jesus Christ. That's what makes it wrong. It's a failure to be like him. Jesus wouldn't tell that joke. Jesus wouldn't think that thought. Jesus wouldn't practice that practice. And considerate people won't do them either. Now, before I was really walking with the Lord, years ago, I had a personal philosophy. My personal philosophy was, as long as what I'm doing is not harming someone else, then it's okay and acceptable to God to do. And so I, I defined my own personal ethic. I created my own personal value system around that philosophy. As long as what I'm doing isn't harming others, then it's okay to do. It's acceptable. 
Problem was, I was the one that was defining what harming others meant. And I was blind to what my idiotic behavior was actually producing in others. I thought everybody was just good with it. Well, really what it was is that nobody wanted to tell me what a horrible person I'd become. Until my girlfriend at the time decided to be honest with me and tell me. And until I let her actually speak for about a half an hour. And she gave me a window into my own soul. And it was such a humiliating experience. The Spirit of God was the only help for me. And I turned my life over to Christ. See, we're blind to the effect of our own behavior when we develop our own personal philosophy like that. Well, what I'm, not, what I'm doing isn't hurting anybody. Oh, yeah? It probably is. Your attitude probably is hurting someone. They just don't want to tell you about it. Your speech patterns probably are hurting many people. But they just don't want to say anything. Remember Paul's statement about love in Romans 13? He said, Owe no one anything except to love one another, because he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For everything that is in the law, everything that the law says, and I'll read the specific list. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there's any other commandment, All of these are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love, true love, does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So, I had to throw away my personal philosophy and go with God's definition of what love is, and it's basically wrapped up in Jesus and who he is and what he's about. So these are the things that are not to be named because they're not fitting for true believers. They're not to be practiced because they're not fitting for true believers. And Paul gives a dire warning in verse 5. No one who practices these things, no fornicator, unclean person, covetous man who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. In other words, these are the lifestyles of those that are not born again, that don't know God. This is the way they act. So if that's the way the world acts, the unconverted person acts, this is their worldview and their personal ethic. It should never be the personal worldview and ethic of the true believer. Now let me pause for a second and just say this, sometimes, and it's rare, but it does happen, sometimes people within the body of Christ choose to live without regard to others. Sometimes people within the body of Christ who have confessed Christ as Savior and Lord decide to give themselves to fornication or to uncleanness or to covetousness, or to filthiness, or any of these other things, without regard to others. 
So they pursue these kinds of sins or other sins that might be listed in the New Testament. And sometimes, if a true believer even pursues these kinds of sins, they will be in denial that their behavior is affecting anyone or harming anyone else or polluting the body of Christ, creating leaven that will grow up and affect others. They refuse to acknowledge the effect their sins are having on other believers. And if they refuse to change, and if they refuse to begin to act in a loving way, what has to happen? They have to be subjected to church discipline. And they have to be Handled in the way Paul told the church in Corinth to handle things, 1 Corinthians 5. If someone who is named a brother, who confesses to be a Christian, is doing and practicing these things, this is his habit, don't sit down and eat a meal with them. Don't entertain fellowship with them as though their lifestyle was acceptable. Cut them off. You have to put them outside of the church for the specific purpose of letting God deal with them. Maybe they'll come to their senses. Maybe they'll once again come back to reality. Maybe they'll start to see what their behavior is doing to others. Maybe they'll be broken by that. And maybe they'll come back in humbly and meekly and desire to fellowship again with the body of Christ. This time walking in love. That's the whole goal of church discipline, is to help perpetually sinning believers in these areas come to their senses so that they can resume loving fellowship within the body of Christ. It's all about restoration. But sometimes it happens, and it was necessary to point that out in this context because of the specific list given. And then in verse 6, Avoid the deception that God is not angry at sin. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Look at that phrase, wrath of God. It seems like that phrase is not often spoken of in church anymore. But there are things about which God is very angry. Now there's two kinds of anger that God has. One is a slow, settled commitment of anger against sin. Because remember, sin is bad stuff, so he's angry against it. And then another type of anger is the kind of anger that results in God actually punishing it in his wrath. So we're not to be deceiving one another and we're not to be deceived into thinking that God will never ever be angry at my sin. That doesn't mean I'm going to be subject to eternal judgment. doesn't mean that I will lose my salvation if I sin. It doesn't mean that I won't be going to heaven when I die. It doesn't mean that the cross of Christ was ineffective to me. It's not talking about that. 
It's talking about the fact that if I respect God, I will understand that he is serious about sin. Sin is forbidden because it's bad, and there are righteous reasons within his own nature for him to hate sin and be angry at it and what it does to people. What God is angry about and what God has wrath toward, I should be angry about in my own life, and have wrath toward in my own life. Remember, I've got to take care of me. The Lord may use me to help others, but only after I take the beam out of my own eye can I see clearly to remove the speck from my brother's eye. Only then. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Eternal judgment rests on those who continue in darkness without Christ. A person like that is a, is a habitual sinner avoiding the truth of the gospel. So we are told, do not be, in verse 7, partakers with them. Don't be partakers with that kind of behavior. Don't gather as believers with other believers for the purpose of engaging in any of these kinds of things. Don't pat each other on the back and reward each other when these kinds of sins are obvious. Encourage one another, stimulate one another, exhort one another, be willing to imitate Christ and walk in love. That's what we need to do. Now this phrase, don't be partakers with them, doesn't mean no association with people who are not in Christ. Remember, Jesus hung out with Pharisees, self-righteous people. He hung out with tax collectors, and he hung out with sinners. But he didn't hang out with them so that he could join with them in their sin and participate with them in their sin. He hung out with them in order that he might represent the Father and love them and draw them into a knowledge of who he is. So there's the difference between the way Jesus does it, and the way we would wrongfully do it. So here's what Paul is assuming throughout the New Testament. Paul assumes that Christians will, have, will not have their lives habitually marked by fornication. That Christians will not have their lives habitually marked by uncleanness or covetousness. Martin Luther suggested once concerning sin, can a Christian or should a Christian continue in sin? And he used a little metaphor. He said, well, I may not be able to prevent a bird flying around above my head, but I can prevent a bird from making a nest in my hair. I can't prevent being exposed to a world that has a lot of sin and evil in it. And occasionally, I'm going to be affected by that, and occasionally I may even stumble in an area or two. I can't prevent living in a world that is dominated by sin. We all have that. But what I can prevent is the bird making a nest in my hair. It doesn't have to dominate my life. It doesn't have to have control over me. I don't have to be in bondage to it. I can say no to it, and I can live without it. And so can you. 
That's the victory that Christ has given us. Consider yourselves, Paul wrote, to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There it is. For sin shall not have dominion over you, he wrote, for you are not under law, but under grace. Isn't that great news? So we're free. So we're not going to have lives that are habitually marked by fornication, uncleanness, or covetousness. But one more thought, we should not even occasionally be partakers with those whose lives are. Because that's not our gig. That's not what we do. That's not the nature of Christ. That's not mimicking him. Amen? So thank you, Lord, for your truth and your word. And what an admonition to walk in love and to be an imitator of God and to look at Jesus. Help us to see Jesus. Father, help us to see you and your great, amazing love and to copy that. Lord, give us new experiences with you that will disprove for us some of the old ones. Give us new understanding, Lord, of what it means to walk in love. Give us new relational patterns in our marriages and with our children and in our work life and in our neighborhood and with extended family and with anyone we meet. Strengthen us, Lord, to walk as Jesus walked. We recognize we can't do this apart from him. But we recognize that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So thank you for that. And as we're in an attitude of prayer right now, there may be some among us this morning that have never made a personal commitment to the Lord Jesus as your Savior. This is what you need to know this morning is that Jesus really does love you. God the Father loves you. He loves you deeply and he loves you personally. He loves you so much that he is willing to look at the way in which you've been living your life and he's willing to say to it, that is bad and it's wrong and I'm angry at it. He's angry at it, not because he's angry at you, but he's angry at what this sin is doing to you, because he made you. But he sent his son Jesus to pay for your sins, to die for your sins, so that you can have life, and you can be free, and you can be forgiven, and you can go to heaven when you die, and you can experience what's called eternal life. He's done all that for you. And the Bible says that as many as received Jesus Christ, those are the same people that he gives the power and authority to become his children. So that's what your decision is this morning. Are you going to open your heart and receive Jesus Christ so that you can become a child of God and be changed and live a different way than you've lived in the past? If that's your heart's desire this morning and you want to make a commitment 
and accept Jesus Christ and invite him into your life to have forgiveness of sins and to begin living a new life. Would you just raise your hand right where you're seated? God bless you. I see you in the back there. Thank you. Anyone else this morning? You've never received Jesus. That's who I'm asking for. You've never received Jesus, but you want to this morning. Anyone else? Okay, would you please raise your hand and, uh, again and, and just pray with me. Pray this prayer out loud after me, you who received Christ or want to receive Jesus this morning. God, I admit that I need Jesus. Go ahead and say that to the Lord. And I admit that I have sinned. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. Say that to him. And I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus, I receive you into my life right now. Just ask him to come in. Jesus, I receive you into my life right now. Forgive me of my sins. Make me a new person. And help me to live for you. As we're just continuing to pray, I'm going to ask you that prayed, would you do something really hard and would you stand up? Just stand up out of your seat. Thank you. What's your name, sister? Your name? Melissa? Okay. We're thanking God for you. Okay, open your eyes and look at our sister who has just accepted Jesus this morning. A whole bunch of people are happy for you, and we want to have Pastor Johnny, who's up here with the yellow shirt on. He's going to, can you raise your hand, Johnny? He's going to connect with you after the service and give you a Bible and just give you some words of encouragement, okay? God bless you. Thanks for coming this morning and opening your heart to him. Let's stand together, shall we? May the Lord strengthen and bless you and keep you and encourage you and keep Jesus always before each of our faces and before each of our minds all week long. Amen? Amen. God bless you.